0: To stay informed of the latest updates, please follow at Germaniapod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 5, Meet the Neighbors. Last week, we took a quick survey of the overall culture and practices of the Germanic tribes in the 1st century A.D. This week, we are going to take a deeper look at some of the individual tribes, highlighting key differentiators and making note of significant historical events that had larger impacts on specific tribes. There were more than 40 different tribes during this period, so we are not going to cover them all. The ones we will highlight are the ones most documented and commented on by the Romans, as they were the source for most of this information. We will also not yet cover the major confederations that rose between the 2nd and 4th centuries the Franks, the Saxons, the Goths, and so forth. As we progress in our narrative, we will cover plenty of major events from the perspectives of those confederations. We'll start with the tribe of Arminius, the Cherusci. The Truuski inhabited the plains and forests of northwestern Germany, on either side of the Weser River, near the modern region of Hanover. The etymology of their name is unknown. There is one theory that it comes from a Germanic word for sword, and another that it comes from a word for deer, either due to religious significance or dietary significance. Arminius was clearly the most famous member of this tribe. Following his victory at the Teutoburg Forest, Arminius was one of the most powerful chiefs in Germany and continued to try and unify other tribes to stand against Rome. As we discussed last week, his efforts led to a war with the Marcomanni, and while Arminius drove the Marcomanni king Marobodus into exile, he was never able to unify Germania under his leadership. He was never king of the Germ... He was never king of the Germans. After Arminius's assassination in 21 AD, the Cherusci fell into civil wars and internal conflicts that greatly weakened them. Eventually, to put an end to the internal squabbling, representatives of the Cherusci requested that Rome send Italicus, the nephew of Arminius, to be their leader. The son of Arminius's brother Flavius, he was raised completely as a Roman. I have not found a definitive date on when Italicus was sent to Germania, it seems that it must have been at least a few years after Arminius's death. I have seen a date as late as 47 AD cited, but I've also seen that it occurred during the reign of Tiberius, who died in 37 AD. In this telling, the emperor Tiberius sent Italicus with money, men, and advisors, as he hoped to bring the Cherusci under Roman influence. With this support, Italicus easily subdued his rivals and was established as chief, but he was never fully accepted due to his Roman upbringing. However, by the time of Nero, the Cherusci were fully established as a client of the Romans. By the time of Tacitus' writing in the late 1st century, the Cherusci were well on the decline. They lost a war to the Chatti at some point in the 80s AD, and afterward developed a much more passive and placid demeanor towards the other tribes. As Tacitus describes it, quote, A delightful but unsafe policy, since peace bordered by power and lawlessness is illusionary, where force acts, discipline, and righteousness are titles given to the strongest. Thus, the Truski, once called just and generous, are now described as spineless fools, while the victorious as chatties, good fortune is ascribed to wisdom." There's a fine line between seeking peace out of prudence versus seeking peace out of weakness. The Cherusci passed from the record shortly thereafter, and they were most likely absorbed into one of the later confederations, the Franks, or the Saxons, or the Alamanni. The Chatti were a tribe to the south of the Cherusci, living near the upper Wesser River and in the valleys between the Eder and Folder Rivers. They participated in the multi-tribe coalition formed by Arminius to fight the Romans. As part of Germanicus's punitive campaigns to avenge the Teutoburg forest, one of the towns he destroyed was Matium, which was the capital of the Chatti. The exact site of this town is unknown. By the late first century, the Chatti had participated in several more wars against Rome. They were known for their tough infantry and for fighting with more discipline than other tribes. As Tacitus describes, Quote, They show a substantial degree of method and expertise for Germans. They appoint men of their own choice, listen to those appointed, observe rank, perceive opportunities, delay their attacks, organize during the daylight hours and retrench at night, distrust luck and depend on courage, and rarest things of all, except where Roman discipline pertains, rely more on the commander than on his men. Other tribes seem prepared for a fight, the chatty for a war, unquote. In a custom unique to the chatty, upon reaching manhood, a young man would refrain from cutting his hair or beard until he killed an enemy. By displaying the bloody shorn hair, they declare that they have repaid the debt owed to the society due to their birth and are worthy of being part of the tribe. Therefore, any man with unkempt hair is regarded as a coward or a weakling. A chatty warrior was expected to maintain no house or land. The wealth and luxuries of the tribe were reserved for those debilitated by age and unable to show their virtue by living such a rough life. When the governor of Germania Superior revolted against the Emperor Domitian in January of 89 AD, the chatty supported him and were set to join his army. The sudden thaw of the Rhine River, however, prevented them from crossing and to serve as auxiliaries, and so the revolt was quickly put down. The Chatti continued to participate in wars against Rome into the third century and were eventually incorporated into the Franks, with some legends suggesting the first king of the Franks was actually a chatty chief. As the Chatti were famed for their infantry, the Tinctere were famed for their cavalry. Their society and way of life was built around horsemanship, from childhood games to the pastimes of old men. While the common practice of the Tinctere, like most tribes, was for a father to pass along his possessions, wealth, and household to his first-born son, the only exception was made for his horse. The horse must go to the best warrior in the family. The Tinctere were one of the tribes massacred by Julius Caesar in 55 BC when they positioned for territory to settle in in Gaul. That made them willing participants in future anti Roman coalitions, though it also left them too weak to do much to challenge Rome on their own. The Bructeri were a tribe that lived on both sides of the upper Ems and Lipa rivers. They participated in an Arminius' coalition, and eventually the legionary eagle standard of the 19th Legion was recovered by Germanicus after a battle against the Bructeri. The Bructeri also supported the Batavi in their revolt against Rome in the province of Germania Inferior. More about that in a bit. Over time, the Bructeri migrated south, and eventually they were incorporated into the Franks. In the late first century, there was a rumor in Rome that the Bructeri had been destroyed by other tribes, with sixty thousand warriors killed. To summarize the Roman policy towards Germania, Tacitus wrote in response to this news. Quote, Fortune can grant us nothing better than discord between our enemies. Moving towards the interior of Germania, the Chauci lived between the Ems and Elbe rivers, from the coast stretching south to the lands of the Chatti. This area was densely populated with Chauci. At various times, they served as both allies and enemies of Rome. While they were fierce warriors, like most of the surrounding tribes, Tacitus, at least, held them in higher regard as a society, with more of an established legal code. They are the noblest of German tribes, choosing to defend their vast territory through the rule of law alone. Neither grasping nor violent, living in peace and quiet, they provoke no wars, nor do they raid and plunder their neighbors. The prime argument for their virtue and strength is this, that their superiority is not founded on injustice, yet they are prompt with arms, and if circumstances demand them, armies with a wealth of men and horses, maintaining that reputation in peacetime. By the 3rd century, the Chauci merged as part of the new coalition of the Saxons. The Subai were a broader tribal group, inhabiting large parts of the interior of Germania. They spread from the Elbe River all the way to the modern Czech Republic, with several tribal offshoots. One of the differentiating cultural practices of the Subi was to comb and tie their hair into a knot. They would then adorn their hair to demonstrate their status within the tribe. The Subian knot has remained in our lexicon to this day. The Subai have played a major role in our story so far, as both Ariovistus in the 50s BC and Marobodus in the first decades of the 1st century AD were kings within the Subai. As a large tribal group capable of raising tens of thousands of warriors, they were more united than was typical of Germans spread over a large area, and Rome viewed them as a threat to their interests in Germania from the Gallic Wars until the disaster in the Teutoburg Forest. The decision of Meribotus to align with Rome against Arminius switched that narrative, and over the following decades, the Subai, and especially the Marcomanni tribe in Bohemia, were Roman allies. The Subai in many ways represented an early example of the types of tribal confederations that came to dominate Germania in the 3rd to 5th centuries AD. Two of the more fo- powerful tribes within the Subai were the Marcomanni and the Quadai, both of whom lived along the Danube River. In the first century A.D., they still maintained independent kings and maintained a degree of independence. Both tribes played critical roles in the developing relationship between Germania and Rome over the second and third centuries. We will spend quite a bit of time with both of these groups in the coming episodes. We will end this week with an extended look at the Batavi and the famous Batavian revolt of 69 A.D., The Batavi separated from the Chatti at some point in the first half of the 1st century AD due to internal disagreements that were intensified due to the interference of the Romans. This is a great example of the way Rome was able to play different tribes and factions within tribes off of each other, providing land or tribute or supplies to one group over another in order to gain more influence in the region. Following their split with the Chatti, the Batavi crossed the Rhine and agreed to provide military service to Rome, while being exempt from paying any taxes or tribute. They settled in the province of Germania Inferior along the Rhine Delta in modern-day Netherlands, and provided a large number of auxiliary troops, including most of Augustus' elite German bodyguard that continued to exist until 68 AD. It is estimated that as many as 50% of Batavi males of military age, 16 years and older, joined the auxiliary forces. They were well regarded as soldiers, and growing up along the river, they learned how to swim in full armor. While this worked out for Rome initially, the Batavian revolt of 69 to 70 AD almost cost Rome their Germanian provinces and part of Gaul. Gaius Julius Civilis was a hereditary prince of the Batavi and the prefect of a Bataevi cohort. As his name suggests, he had been made a citizen of Rome during his 25 years of service. He and the eight Bataevi cohorts played an important role in the Roman invasion of Britain in 43 AD and the ongoing occupation and subjugation of the island. The Batavian cohorts were finally withdrawn from Britannia and sent back to the Rhine in 66 AD. After returning home, Civilis and his brother were arrested by the governor of Germania Inferior on accusations of treason. The consensus both now and at the time was that these charges were false, though I am not aware of a reason why the governor felt he needed to accuse Sevilus of treason. The governor ordered Sevilus' brother to be executed and sent Sevilus to Rome in chains for judgment by Nero. The difference in treatment indicates that the brother was still a non-citizen subject of the empire, while Savillus, as a Roman citizen, was entitled to have his case heard by the emperor in person. While Sevilus was in prison awaiting trial, Nero was overthrown in late 68 AD and committed suicide. The Roman general Galba was proclaimed emperor and he acquitted Sevilus of the treason charge and allowed him to return home. Soon after, Galba also disbanded the German bodyguard and sent them home due to their loyal, loyalty to the Julio-Claudian dynasty. These cracked Batavian troops, not to mention the entire Batavian nation, took this as a grave insult. In Germania, the relationship between the Batavian auxiliaries and the Roman legion, the 14th Gemina, continued to degrade, with fighting breaking out on several occasions. By the time he returned home in 69 A.D., there was a new Roman governor of Germania Inferior, Aulus Vitellius. At the urging of his legions, Vitellius arrested Sevilus again. Whatever his plans for Sevilus, however, they had to be put on hold as Rome began to sink into a civil war during this year of the four emperors. Galba's popularity declined rapidly amongst the legions and his own Praetorian bodyguard, leading to his assassination by the Praetorian prefect Otho and the Praetorians declaring Otho emperor. At this point, two provincial legions proclaimed their own leaders as emperor, these very Rhine legions under Vitellius and the Syrian legions under Titus Flavius Vespasianus. Not to spoil the story, but Vespasian is going to emerge victorious by the end of the year, establishing the Flavian dynasty that ruled Rome for nearly 30 years. Now that he was at war, Vitellius needed allies, and so he released Civilis under the condition that he lead the Batavian cohorts during his fight for the throne. After helping Vitellius defeat Otho at the Battle of Bedriacum, the Batavian cohorts were allowed to return home. The summer of 69, in addition to being the best days of our lives, now found Savillus in command of the Batavian cohorts along the Rhine. The Rhine legions were being led by Senator Marcus Hordionius Flaccus, who was desperate to raise more men to help Vitellius fight Vespasian. Savillus induced another tribe, the Canonephates, to attack several Roman forts in the region. Flaccus sent auxiliary troops to control the situation, and they were completely routed by the combined Batavi and Kenanaphates army in a battle near Arnhem. At some point over the next few months, word came from Vespasian that if Cephalus continued to fight the troops along the Rhine and prevent them from coming to support Vitellius, he would grant the Batavi their independence. Savillus began a siege of a Roman camp at Castra Vetera, that was holding two legions, and while he could not breach the walls, he set up to starve the legions out. While Flaccus prepared a relief effort, Savillus launched a separate offensive, sending eight cavalry cohorts to attack the Roman army at Crefield. The Romans won the battle and destroyed the cavalry units, but their own losses were immense. At this point, Sevilus abandoned the siege of the Roman camp as winter was setting in, and he knew that Flaccus would eventually send a strong relief effort after defeating his cavalry. Sevilus feigned a threat on the capital of Germania Superior, Moguntiacum, and Flaccus moved his men to protect the city. At this point, Flaccus learned the news of Vespasian's victories over Vitellius and ascension to the throne. Knowing that his troops had been loyal to Vitalius, and that morale would likely be low in light of this news, Flaccus attempted to lift their spirits with a celebration in honor of the new emperor, including distribution of a large sum of money to the troops. This ended up being the last mistake Flaccus would ever make. The troops were deeply offended, and took this as an attempt to buy them off. They killed Flaccus and his second-in-command. Meanwhile, Taking advantage of the civil war in Italy and the revolt along the Rhine, a Roman Gallic noble named Julius Sabinus induced two Roman legions stationed in Gallica Belgica to defect and attempt to set up an independent kingdom. With the defection of the Gallic legions and the chaos following the execution of Flaccus, Sevilus returned to besiege the Roman camp at Castra Vetera, With food supplies low and no help of relief, The legions agreed to surrender and leave all of their weaponry and equipment, if they were allowed safe passage. Once they were a few miles outside the camp, the Batavi attacked the unarmed Romans and slaughtered them, with the senior officers taken as slaves. Sevilis then relocated to the modern city of Cologne, and continued to try and get more Germanic and Gallic tribes to join the rebellion. At this point in early 70 AD, with Vespasian secure on the throne, he began to organize a massive military response to reclaim the rebellious provinces. Five legions were sent to Germania, with two more from Hispania and another from Britannia called in to pacify Gaul. With the approach of this massive army, one of Savillus' close allies surrendered, and the two Roman legions that had defected to Sabinus capitulated. Sabinus was forced into hiding, and there is no definitive account of what happened to him. The story of his loyal wife Eponia keeping him safely hidden away became a popular legend in France many centuries later. Savillus retreated north back into Germania Inferior, and continued to fight the Romans at land and at sea. In one raid, he captured the Roman flagship, a humiliation to the Roman commander. But unfortunately for Seville, he was not going to be able to keep this up much longer. In September of 70 AD, the First Jewish-Roman War came to an end, freeing up thousands of troops in the east to come and finish off the Batavians. With the writing on the wall, Seville sued for peace. The Batavians were forced to resubmit to Rome and provide an additional eight auxiliary cavalry units. A bridge was built across the Nabalian River, A Roman legion was stationed permanently in Batavian territory, and their capital was destroyed, and rebuilt in a more defenseless position. The fate of Savillus is unknown. It seems unlikely he was executed, as that would have made it into a record somewhere, either in the writings of Cassius Dio, or documented in the Temple of Vespasian. Over the centuries, the Dutch came to see the Batavians as their ancestors, and the Batavian Revolt was treated as a story of Dutch national heroes. This is where the Batavian Republic of 1795 to 1806 gets its name. The Batavian Revolt, in many ways, is an echo of the disaster in the Teutoburg Forest we discussed previously. In both cases, we see a coalition along the Rhine coming together under the leadership of a tribal noble who had served in and been educated by the Roman army and Roman society to fight for independence from Rome. In both cases, their ability to attract allies was highly influenced by the machinations of Roman politicians. And while the Romans responded differently, in the end both were ultimately defeated by Rome, and both Arminius and civilis were unable to hold a coalition together. Most importantly, they highlight that through the first century AD, the response of the Germanic tribes to Roman encroachment was still to fight to maintain their independence from Rome. As we continue along over the next few episodes, we will see how that ultimate goal begins to shift. I hope this overview has given you a sense of the different groups occupying Germania during the height of Roman power and influence. As we move forward, we will explore the role the Germans played in combating, reinforcing, undermining, supporting, and ultimately destroying the power of Rome.